maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – and we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. So my name is Bernard Henri-Révy. Uh, my English has not improved <laughs> since, since the last time, I fear. But uh, since the last time, um, I, I happened to live and a strange, unforgettable, maybe unforgivable also, an extraordinary experience. Uh, I will not enter into the details of this experience. You, you had some of them through the newspapers maybe during the last year. In a few words, the experience was the following. I um, happened to be to enter in Libya um, to smuggle myself in Libya at the very eve on the very first days of the uprising 
against Muammar Gaddafi. I happened to meet, to be probably the first foreigner to meet the man who was at this time the secret leader of the insurrection, of the uprising. I happened to connect myself, and I say happened because all this is a series of circumstances, of sort of miracles, which I cannot relate in another way than saying that it happened that. It happened that I connected myself to the president of my country, France, with whom I never spoke since years. And not only we never, we, we no longer spoke since his election, but we were in really non-speaking terms. <laughs> it happened that when I asked him genuinely and being completely not only moved but destroyed by all that I saw on my road from the Egyptian border to Benghazi, all the traces of massacres, of bloodbath, of summary executions which I, I witnessed. When full of that, I asked to the president of my country if he would accept to receive in France the man whom I just met, who was President Abdel... He was not even president because the NTC was not yet constituted. But let's say the future president of the NTC, Mustafa Abdel Jalil. It happened that Nicolas Sarkozy told me why not. When I told him why not, what does it mean? told me, bring them. It happened that when I brought the representative of the NTC in Paris, France, after the consultation of David Cameron, who was the only one to be in the secret, decided as a thunderstorm to recognize the NTC and to declare the, the non-legitimacy of Muammar Gaddafi. It happened that in the following weeks, returning to Benghazi, introducing myself in complicated uh, ways, by complicated ways to the besieged city of Misrata, besieged and at this time cut off from the world, from the rest of the world, I achieved them. I, I, I was able to take out of Libya again some commanders, some of free officers, the defenders of Misrata, for example, and take them again to France and to Sarkozy. It happened that I was in September in Tripoli and in Benghazi with Nicolas Sarkozy and David Cameron on a day which was not a day of glory because a war is never a glory even when it ends, but which was a day of relief and a day of freedom. All this happened to me during this incredible and strange year 2011. 
In other words, it happened that I was eyewitness of probably the most extraordinary event which I lived in my life and of one of the most unexpected events for all of us, which was a a revolution in Libya and in the Arab world. So what I want to, to do tonight before listening to, uh, replying to your questions, I would like to, to tell you in a few remarks what theoretical, philosophical lessons, lessons I draw from this moment of the, our time and of my modest life. I witnessed all that. I followed all that. Sometimes I did a little more than follow. And when I look back, when I try to recollect these months of madness, I think that I can draw, I am able today to draw a few general conclusions, which is what I would like to deliver to you tonight. The first conclusion I draw of all that happened in Libya is that contrary to so many birds of bad omen believed, contrary to what thought all the relativists or culturalist thinkers, the desire of liberty is universal. Already in the 60s, in the 70s, there was the belief in a big part of the West and of the intelligentsia, the belief according to which all the central and eastern part of Europe was in the darkness forever, and that the desire of freedom had been cut, eradicated from the minds of the homo sovieticus. 1989, the proof was given to the world that the world of liberty was like the frozen words of Rabelais, the frozen words, you have uh, mammoth which are frozen, you have the pieces of dinosaur which are frozen, but you have also some words which are frozen. And when there is a defreezing, the words revive. This happened in the Soviet Union and is still happening at the very minute we are speaking, by the way. And this happened in the Central Europe and this suddenly to the surprise of all the observers, it happened to the Arab world. There was a sort of unwritten law, a sort of unsaid theorem, saying that there was an Arab exception, that the ideas of liberty which were bred by Europe which had their nest and their origin in the West were not made for 
this part of the planet. The relativists lost the game, the universalists did win the party, the proof is given that there are some universal values, some universal wishes which have nothing to do with places, times, and circumstances. In the language of French philosophy, it is the victory of Julien Binda against Charles Maurras. It is the victory of those who believe that mankind is one and that there are some wishes and therefore some rights which are valuable wherever. This happened in Libya. And for all the skeptical, for all the birds of bad omen, it was a bad surprise. For me, it was, of course, a great surprise. The second philosophical lesson is that the victory of liberty, the fact that the job of being a dictator is no longer a good job, that it is a dangerous one, see what is happening with Bashar al-Assad, and think of what might be happening to another dictator of today, who is Vladimir Putin. I make a bet today. I think that the dictator of Russia, the man who is personally responsible of killing one-fifth of the population of Chechnya, 200,000 dead in a country which counted one million at this time. The man whom we Westerners believed to be shaping a sort of new pattern of society, a new model of capitalism, a new engine for the growth of the world. The man whom we thought able to save the euro, to buy our debts with, with his Chinese buddy. I name Vladimir Putin, Chinese buddy, Hu Jintao. I think that this man will know very hard times in the year which will soon begin. He will know a very hard time. He will have a very hard time. The job of being a dictator is becoming a very hard job. And the Gaddafi model, the lesson of Gaddafi, might be heard and are heard, I'm sure, till Petersburg and Moscow. But the second philosophical lesson is that if it is true that there is a new wind of freedom all over the world, if it is true that the ideals of democracy, free speech, uh, right for a body and for a soul not to be tortured are on the wave of victory, it is not true 
that this should mean a sort of end of history. It is not true that we are facing, we are entering in a world where a sort of great song of freedom will be sung in the same tone by the same orchestra all over the world. I don't believe in the end of history. I believe that the wave of freedom, which we saw devastating the dictatorship of Libya, opens a new space of time, if I dare say, a new sequence of time, which will be occupied by new forms of political shocks, not the shock we be, one, some believed in the past, not the shock between the West and the rest, not the shock between the Western world and the world of Islam, but shocks inside the world of Islam, shock inside Libya, for example, which is the case I know best between liberals and fundamentalists, between secularists and Islamists, between various ways of living the Muslim faith, and so on. There is today a real battle going on, a real political quarrel raging inside Islam, this world of Islam which was frozen by the dictatorships, the dictatorships being removed one after the other. And in Syria, it will no, not last very long now. In the defreezing of that, you have real clashes which are taking place and the end of which one cannot predict. So second philosophical lesson, the entry in the world, not of the non-history, as Alexandre Koge, as Fukuyama, Alexandre Kojève, or Hegel said, but of real history. The return of history in this part of the world, which was supposed to be as a corpse, as a cadaver, which was supposed to be a sort of frozen body. The third lesson of this Libyan affair for me is that is the following. I think that there is in our countries, in, in the West, in Europe, and especially in America, in UK, and in France, one debate which prevails, prevails on my point of view, on the others, which is much more important than being leftist or rightist, for example, which has still a meaning, but which is maybe more important than right and left. Conservative of liberal or liberal, and so on, which is the debate between 
what we call in France, I don't know what would be the equivalent in English, le souverain, the sovereignism, and le, en français, in French, le souverainism et l'ingérence. Souverainism, meaning that a man or a woman is defined, of course, by his rights, but these rights are themselves defi defined, shaped, patterned according to the space, the borders around this space, the state which govern these, this space, where the man or the woman happens to be born and to live. There is a theory which comes from very far away in history, which goes to Hegel, which believes that the state-nation, nation as embodied in a state, is the, the last word of mankind and therefore of human rights. One has rights, but they are defined in the frame, in the limits of a nation, of a state. They are defended by this state. They are limited by it, and so on. This is sovereignism. Rights have to do with borders. There is, everybody has rights, but these rights are defined by this frame. On the other hand, you have the partisans of ingérence in France, involvement, involvement, or internationalism, or I don't know how you would say it in English. Those who believe that there are some rights which do not rely on, which do not depend of the belonging to a state, a nation, a part of the world, which, which transcend all that. And that humanity as itself is the guardian of these rights. And that, for example, when a state betrays its vocation, its duty to protect the rights of its citizens, there is a right, it is not an exception, it is a right. There is a right for the rest of the humanity expressed in a way which depends on circumstances, a right to intervene and to decrete the illegitimacy of the state concerned. This is a great debate everywhere in America between the, the, between the Jacksonians, the Jeffersonians, the Hamiltonians and the Wilsonians who share the foreign policy of America since the beginning of the American Republic. The real debate is this one. Those who believe that the task that every people has rights, but it is a problem of their state, and the idea, the idea that America has something to say 
has a message to deliver in some occasions to the rest of the world. In England, probably the same, and in France, even more. Libya signs the victory of involvement against sovereignism. Libya signs the fact, and it is the first time, the first time in modern history, that the international community decided and acted in consequence that she has a duty and a right to intervene in a country which has in principle a sovereign state when this sovereignty is exerted in a way which is barbarous. It is the first time. We, have many, we had many wars in the past, in the 20th century, in the 19th centuries. There was war of conquest, there were wars for empires, there were wars for interests, there were wars for vital space. But a war which is only dictated by the idea that human consciousness is deeply concerned, maybe uh, interpolated by a bloodbath in a remote little country, which is nearly, which was nearly unknown by most of the diplomats of the world. This sort of war was really a new one. The war which was not. Uh, waged in the Balkans, in Bosnia. It was waged, yes, but 200,000 dead too late, which was not even thought in Chechnya. We, the world really let Putin go to the end of his uh, target. And so on, this war was waged in Libya. And this is a real change, a real move, a real revolution in the way of thinking of the West. It is the first time that the wish, the right, and the duty of involvement prevails on the resignation to sovereignism, prevails on the famous word of Goebbels, who said, in 1938, that Charbonnier is maître chez soi. Charbonnier, the coal man, is master at home. He does what he wants. The rights of the state crown the rights of the men, and the second depend on the first one. So this is a real theoretical, philosophical lesson which has to be drawn and can be drawn from this Libyan event. And the fact, the signature of the signature, the proof, the ultimate proof that this happened appeared a few days ago. The signature, the, the, the real 
testimony, test of this final victory, that the game is over, that the sovereignist lost the game. It was achieved a few days ago when a group of countries which are not Western countries, which are Arab countries, and which are assembled inside the Arab League, decided to implement sanctions, to exhort a dictator, Bashar al-Assad, to stop the bloodbath, and decided that it was their affair. This day, the duty of involvement, the right of ingérence, stopped to be a Western idea built by a few neo-colonialist intellectuals, as it was said. It stopped to be a disguised imperialist idea since it was endorsed by the Arab League. And this date, this moment when the Arab League implemented sanction Bashar al-Assad was the real victory of what a few intellectuals in Europe, people like Bernard Kouchner in the 70s and others in England, in France, including myself, what we dreamt during so many years, what we saw fail so many times, prevailed and won in Libya. Libya was a victory of freedom of the Libyan people, first of all, of course. Libya was the, the victory of bodies promised to carnage, to massacre, to the rivers of blood promised that by Gaddafi and his son, but it was also the victory of an idea. Sometimes ideas go on horseback under your window and you recognize them. This idea of this humanitarian involvement of this right of international community to implement it was embodied and prevailed. And this is a real revolution. The other lesson of this history, I would sum it up by saying that this Libyan revolution, this Libyan war, at the end, when you consider it on a whole, uh, as a whole story, proves something very strange. That not a few men, but a few desires, a few wishes, desire, can really change the face of the world. Because when I remember these months, of night, of darkness, with sometimes some sparks of light here and there. When I remember the United Nations Council, like for Syria today, with countries shameless defending the dictator, China, Russia, maybe already Brazil, I don't know, Germany, very neutral. The Security Council, the United Nations, 
believed by the, from the bottom of their, of their being that Gaddafi was all right, that he kept the machinery and the country quiet, and that he had to do the job he thought he had to do. The public opinions in Europe and in France, for example, did not understand why this war was waged. And when it was understood, very often, the public opinion was against. The crisis was so deep, unemployment growing. This war did cost so much. What do we have to do in these remote deserts of Libya? I think it, is, it was the same in England, and I know it was the same in America, and it is one of the reasons why Obama chose this strange form of leadership by behind. This war was not popular at all. The diplomats, the big diplomatic bureaucracies of the main countries involved did not want, it was not in their habit, it was not their way of thinking. There is a diplomatic way of viewing the world which consists in saying things are not so bad, things are improving, and things will turn well at the end. This is a diplomatic way of thinking. It was the way in which Libya was seen. So the diplomats were again. The public opinion was against. The Arab countries were against. I remember my surprise when I went out of Libya in some of my trips there. I went through Egypt. I met some Egyptian leaders, responsible statesmen. They had the most powerful army of the area, um, uh, financed by huge amounts of American money, billions of dollars every year. They were close. They controlled the border. They could, in one uh, minute, get rid of the army of mercenaries of Gaddafi. They could, in one minute, give support and uh, uh, secure their so-called Libyan brothers. They did not do. No neighbor of Libya was ready to give the help. So, if you look at the story, you see that, finally, this unique war, this first humanitarian intervention in history, this revenge from Bosnia, Darfur, Bangladesh, Chechnya, this revenge of the damned of these wars, this revenge, yes, was due to a few men and women. In France, Nicolas Sarkozy. I'm not a supporter of him. I was not in 2007. I will probably not be in 2012. But I must confess 
that the way this man, as Jacques Lacan would say, n'a pas cédé sur son désir, did not withdraw on his own desire, did not recede on his own desire, was so strange, so unusual, and so full of merit. In England, there was one man. Again, I don't think that if I was British, I would be his supporter. But I saw him in Tripoli. I saw him in Benghazi. I observed him. David Cameron, again. As Nicolas Sarkozy said yesterday, in an interview in Le Monde, he spoke of the courage, courage of David Cameron, And I must say again that the consistency of his desire, the way he proceeded and pursued his own desire is very un, uh, customary, is very rare in modern history. This history relied on the desire of a third man, who is not the least important when you think about it. There was Sarkozy, there was Cameron, but in order to have them build an international coalition, in order to have them go to United Nations and compel the ambassadors of the state members to vote a resolution or to abstain, which Sarkozy and Cameron did, in order to have all that, you had to have, prior to all this, the desire of a last man, who is Mustafa Abdel Jalil. This man, again, said what, at the time where I speak, the Syrian opponents to Bashar al-Assad did not say. He asked what no Arab leader ever asked at his own risks, uh, putting himself probably in great danger. He did ask. And I know that I bear testimony of this because I am the one who conveyed the message. He did ask for a Western intervention. He did ask to press the stop button, as somebody here would say, to one of the worst plagues of our time, which is a supposed clash between the West and the Arab world. He asked for an intervention. So the lesson is also that, that a few men can change the course of history, that a few human desires pushed to them, pulled to them last extreme consequences can 
be right against all the bureaucracies, all the international technocracies, all the big animals of the big public opinion. A few can be right against all these big things. And this again is a philosophical lesson, and this again is a lesson of hope for those who, like me, were accustomed to the reverse, were accustomed to see the desires of the women and men of goodwill to break themselves on the rock of the, of the machine, of the thing with a big T, the big T of the big thing. For the first time, it was the contrary. And for me, it was such a moment, such a surprise, and such a joy. I see myself seeing Cameron and seeing Sarkozy in Benghazi with, in my memory, the destroyed bodies, the ruined souls, the desertified gazes of so many victims, of so many forgotten wars I, I happened to see and to cover in my life. They were like little ghosts with very sad smiles looking at this incredible event, which was some Western countries having, having made alliance with some Arab countries, Emirates, Qatar, and so on, and having won a, a battle for the right and for the liberty. And what I can say also, and it will be my last, it will be my last uh, remark, it was a big surprise for me, of course, but I think that it was a big surprise also in the Muslim world and even in the most extreme fringes of the Muslim world. I'm not the friend, I have no, really no friendly feelings toward the extremists of Islam. You know that and uh, for me, I did not change one iota of my thoughts in the last time I came to speak here, since my investigation on, Dani on Daniel Pearl and so on. And I really believe that those who use Islam as a tool to implement or to cover or to justify humiliation, inequality between men and women, or crime are double criminals against the women and men whom they offend, 
and against the faith which you offend to. But what I saw in Libya, I met some of these people. I met probably the most radical Islamists of Libya, which are now in this ideological battle I told you before, trying to increase their weight, maybe defeated, we'll see. I met them. And even in their eyes, even in their brain fed with the old ideology of the West being guilty by essence, being their enemy for eternity, pursuing, pursuing no other target than offending and humiliating them, they discovered the face of a West who had the face of Cameroon, of Sarkozy, of the Brits, the French, the Norwegian pilots, fighting elbow to elbow with Emirati pilots, targeting some tanks which were at the edge of uh, committing mass massacres against innocent civilians. And suddenly, I saw that for them too, it was a huge surprise. The image of the Westerner being metaphysically their enemy, being by essence and substance, aiming at the defeat and the humiliation of Islam, suddenly was, uh, did not disappear, but was seriously weakened. So to end, I would say that this war in Libya was also the first real defeat of this ideology of the clash of civilization, which was driven by some American scholars, which was endorsed by some Arab activists, Al-Qaeda, Huntington on one side, Al-Qaeda on the other, the clash of civilization. The first defeat of this idea, the first serious defeat, the first military defeat, the first concrete defeat was this war in Libya. When Obama pronounced his big speech in Cairo, he spoke against the clash of civilization. When uh, there were many occasions where good Western leaders spoke against that, but the concrete defeat, the defeat on the ground, the first one, the first time that this clash has not been seen as a fatality was this war in Libya. And for this reason too, this event is a real seminal event of the 21st century. And we are only beginning to see and to conceive its political and philosophical consequences. Voila, these were my, my preliminary remarks. I hope they provoke some observations, questions, and I would be more than happy to try to reply.
Thank you, Monsieur Levy, uh, for your very interesting analysis. You implicitly made a comparison between the revolutions of 1989 in Central and Eastern Europe and the Arab Spring and Libya. Could you say a little bit more about that comparison? What do you think are the similarities and what do you think are the differences between the revolutions of 1989 and the Arab Spring? The similarity was, is that they were, in both cases, uh, war against the impossible. There was a decree in both cases, a decree of uh, the modern providence, which is history, that these two areas were closed to democracy, human rights, whatever. In the 80s, I don't see you well, so maybe you are too young, I don't know. In the 80s and, or 70s, 70s and 80s, it was admitted that the division of Europe was not a geographical one. It was a geographical, it, be, it began as a geographical and military division, and it turned out, it transformed itself into an ontological division. There were books of Alexander Zinoviev, for example, the author of the very famous book called Homo Sovieticus, saying that communism had achieved, had succeeded, not in the way which was uh, pursued by the founders of it, but it had built a new man, stranger to the idea of the, of the human rights, uh, indifferent to democracy in the way we conceive it, and so on. This was the common thought. There was the idea that the two parts of Europe lived in a temporality, in a way of thinking, in a civilizational space, which was different from those of the West. This was the idea before 89. And nearly nobody could conceive, could conceive, could imagine that the two parts part of Europe might share the same time, the same uh, uh, time in the sense of Kant, universal time. No, the two Europes were living like in the time, uh, according to Aristotle, who believed that each object had, had its internal incorporated embedded time, there was a time of the Eastern Europe, there was a time of the Western Europe. There was a sort of tourism which developed in the 60s and 70s, which consisted in going in the east of Berlin and discovering a sort of other humanity, other human ecology, which was forever, for the centuries and the centuries, different. So was the common sense and the common opinion about the Arab world. There was, for this part of the world too, the common opinion that for religious reasons, 
for reasons linked to the past, linked to some um, U-turn which were not taken at the good moment. There were many explanations. But the result was the same. There was an, an historical which had become natural antagonism between Islam and democracy. There was an antagonism between Islam and democracy. And you had, till last year, some books, some articles, who asked, is Islam compatible with human rights? But the very fact to ask the question meant, implied the reply. The reply was no, no except if, no except for a few heroes risking their life, as the dissidents did in the east of Europe. I remember, by the way, it comes now to, uh, to my souvenir, the first time I spoke here in Intelligence Square, I remember to have called for a chain of solidarity here with the dissidents of Islam as we did in the 70s with the dissidents of Sovietism. So I saw the situation in the, uh, as exactly similar. A huge granitic ideology, a sort of uh, other way to live one's mankind with some dissidents, some... Uh, uh, outranking women and men who were, of course, who deserved all our respect, but whose victory was inconceivable. So in this way, yes, the two situations are comparable, and one must admit that neither one event nor the other was predicted by anyone. You cannot, uh, a lot of people now, time passing by, say that uh, in the midst of the 80s, they predicted that communism will, no, really not. And same for the Islamic world. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Bernard Levy, uh, for... Uh, uh, your talk, a bit romantic, but thank you. But there is a, a bit of a paradox, I think, in uh, what you've actually uh, said, because whilst I agree with you that um, you know, there is a great movement of uh, universality of the human spirit in Libya and in Egypt, uh, how do you actually um, go and explain the position of South Africa was also emancipated itself from a very uh, harsh regime, but without foreign intervention, and how can you be certain that intervention is the only way for uh, you know, countries and citizens to actually emancipate themselves from dictatorial regime? I'm sorry, uh, can you repeat the question? Uh, no, no, my, my English is even worse when I listen than when I speak. Okay. Uh, who, who is speaking first? I don't... <laughs> Ah, okay, okay. Um, yeah, I was just, I was just thinking... How, how I'm sure of what? 
No, because you, you actually said there is a droit d'ingérence. Yeah. Uh, and Libya has proven that yeah. there is a droit d'ingérence. But South Africa, all along, was actually against this droit d'ingérence. It was more... Who was against? South Africa, l'Afrique du Sud. And um, there is actually, um, you know, I think there is a history in South Africa of a country and black citizens, you know, actually revolting against a, a very dictatorial regime. And the emancipation was sustainable. You know, South Africa, you know, has been able to reconcile with this past and to emancipate. And you're actually advocating that the only way in Libya, but it's a question of time, is how long do you give people you know, in Libya, in Egypt, in Tunisia, to actually emancipate themselves. And by actually having this ingérence, do you not actually create more problem in terms of the sustainability of democracy, you know, actually, uh, you know, taking place in these countries? Uh, how we are now worried in Egypt with, you know, maybe the Muslim Brotherhood, whether it's good or bad, or we are worried in Tunisia about Islam is coming on. Who has the right to decide for these people who is actually, uh, you know, the right about their emancipation? Who has the right to decide? Uh, mankind. If you believe in unicity of mankind, if you don't uh, buy the theory of mankind divided in big holes, W-H-O-L-E-S, big holes, consistent, close to themselves, like big uh, Leibnizian monads without windows and doors. If you don't buy this theory, if you don't buy the theory that inside each hole the problems must be solved and so on, so everybody has a, legitime, a legitimate opinion a legitimate right to, 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 to judge about what is, what is happening everywhere. This is what was conceived and conceptualized with the concept of crime against humanity. Crimes against humanity mean that you have some crimes who do not hurt, who did, who did, do not hurt only their actual victims, but who hurt by resonance, the whole of humanity. And it means also that the rest of the humanity has the right and the duty to feel concerned and hurt. So this is the general reply. Now, there is a way of implementing that. And of course, uh, one cannot, the international community cannot <coughs> act everywhere where there, is, there are some crimes which are committed, of course, and alas, because in principle it should. What happens in Syria, the disgusting indifference of the National Security Council is terrible. The way, as I told you, we did not react in the two wars of Chechnya, the way in which we embraced the criminal Putin for so many years is really uh, disgusting also. But there is a theoretical right on one side and there are circumstances which allow to implement the principle. 
And it is not because we don't implement it everywhere that we should not be happy to implement it when it can be. In other words, during all this month, I, I heard, but okay, but as, a, as an argument against what we are doing in Libya, why don't you do it in Syria? Why don't, did you not do it in uh, Sierra Leone and so on? And my reply was that I shared absolutely, and more than shared, the sorrow of those who regretted that it was not done in Sierra Leone. I, th I believed with all my, my, my will and my heart that Syria deserved exactly the same sort of operation, but this had not to be, could not be a reason not to act where we could act and where we were a concourse of circumstances allowed the international community to act. And I must say also that there is some chains of consequences. And as I told you before, I think that there, there will be, Libya will be, a Libya will be a precedent in the history in which we are entering. There will be a, a Qaddafi jurisprudence. And you will see, again, China, Russia, who believed a few months ago, who believed one year ago, that Putin could be um, interpolated by his own people as he is since a few days. You have a real beginning of earthquake which happens in Russia. And this is linked with, with what has happening in this part of the world. There is a sort of um, uh, a continuing spark going uh, on and on, which began in Tunisia, which continued in Libya, and which maybe will reach uh, Russia. Just on uh, your theory of universal liberty, which you've been uh, talking about. So you mentioned Putin in Russia. Um, obviously, we've talked about Gaddafi in, in Libya. In relation to China, which you've just mentioned, do you not think that... I mean, so first of all, do you think that we're going to see the rumblings of what we've begun, what we've, what we've begun to witness in Russia, in China, in the years to come? And if so, how would you feel about these two factors, which I think should qualify your sort of universal theory? First of all, in China... Um, you have a situation where the ordinary people are getting richer, not poorer, as was in the case in Libya. And secondly, there isn't one dictator. There is a communist party of lots of individuals. So it is harder to fix one sort of hatred on one individual as you had in a situation with Gaddafi and with Putin. So how do you feel in relation to China that those issues may qualify the theory of universal liberty? It's hard to, to reply to that. But w what I think is that we are living an extraordinary moment of history. Uh, 
we ha there was a moment in the in the 60s where there was this wave of uh, decolonization for example with the France Fanon with uh, Senghor there was a wave uh, a sort of um, uh, big ford uh, uh, cord uh, which was crossing the world and uh, um, exhorting the peoples not to remain in the chains of empires. There was a time before that where the, the mood of the moment was the, the communism for the, the best or the worst. And there was a sort of contamination of that. Today, we are living a moment which is, for me, quite extraordinary. I wish that all my life where democratic freedoms are seen as an ideal and a reachable ideal nearly everywhere in the world. I do not say that it will be the last, the final world of history. I do not say that some new dictatorships will not succeed and will not come after. I do not say that they will, that they will prevail. I do not mean that in China we will not see a new huge Tiananmen, and maybe bigger than the one of uh, 1989. But I say that all over the world, and even in the countries which we believed, and there are tons of books and theories about that, were inventing some sort of new chimeric way of linking the social link. Russia and China, half capitalism, half communism, uh, uh, work but not right, and, uh, and so on, not all liberty. Even in these places, there is this wind of freedom, this wish for freedom and this wind, wind of liberty. This is a tendency of today, and nobody will escape that. No place in the world will escape this huge world wind. So what will be the end of the story? I don't know, of course. Putin uh, will not uh, let himself be um, enthroned like Gaddafi, for sure. But let's see we might be very surprised by what will happen in Russia. We might discover that uh, Khodorkovsky, for example, saying from the depth of his jail in the desert that the new alternative of the world was corruption and all democracy. Khodorkovsky said that, one, said that once, that the alternative was no longer socialism and democracy, or communism and liberty, that it was corruption and democracy. Maybe he will be proved to be right. Maybe he will be proved to be right when he said that the, the new uh, oil czarism of Russia did not strangle completely the 
wish of freedom of the Russia of Pushkin. When he said that Tolstoy did not completely uh, uh, destroy and make forget Turgenev, he said all, all of that from the depth of his jail. Maybe he will be, he will be proven to be, to be right. So what I say is that the mood of the time, the Le Fond de l'Air, there was a movie of Chris Marker in the 60s called Le Fond de l'Air est Rouge. The depth of the air is red. Today it is not red, it is, I don't know, orange, like in Ukraine, uh, green, like in uh, Libya, white, like in Russia. I don't know. But there is a fond de l'air which is really changing. And we are witnesses of that. This is a great responsibility. And this is also a great chance. Okay? It's not me. Bonsoir. Uh, if it was correct uh, to intervene in Libya to overthrow uh, one dictator, Muammar Gaddafi, why was it wrong to intervene in Iraq to overthrow another dictator, Saddam Hussein, a war which in the past you described as detestable? Surely if one was justifiable and legitimate, then so was the other. And I, I expect that will be a lengthy answer. So just quickly, do you expect uh, President Barack Obama to be re-elected next year? Uh, he might be reacted, yes. What is the difference between Libya and, uh, and Iraq? Uh, two main differences. First one, truth and lies. Truth and lies. And in the time in which we are entering, when moral standards and moral values take a new role, the difference is not nothing. The Iraqi war was based upon lies. The Libyan war was based upon a sort of truth. Nothing was disguised. No, no. There was no hidden interest. There was no uh, hidden plot. There was no cosmetic arrangements. In Iraq, you had all this stuff about the, the weapons of mass destruction and so on, which in the egg, from the beginning, spoiled the story. The other difference, which is very important, and which is maybe essential, is that you, there is a right and a duty to intervene, Always, but much more, and with much more chance of succeeding when you come to support first somebody who asks for it, and second, somebody who not only asking but is already fighting. In Libya, we supported a real 
uprising of a whole people who, in its majority at least, was expressing the wish of getting, of, uh, getting rid of Gaddafi. In Iraq, the democracy was supposed to be parachuté, to come by air, without any force genuine and uh, rooted on the ground. The Americans had to build a sort of bouffon party and organization and people. We will not name them. It's unuseful in order to justify the intervention. And this makes a very big difference. To come to support a people already uprising, or to come to impose a democracy which has, for the moment, at, the, at this point, no real uh, spokesman in the country, it makes the whole difference between the two. Number three, the war in Iraq had not only boots on the ground, but there was a plan of occupation. And in fact, till now, till this time, there have been some occupation forces. The great wisdom of Cameron and Sarkozy this time was to decide that there will not be one foot of one regular soldier on the ground of Libya. And the last difference between Libya and Iraq, there is another one. The decision to act in Iraq was taken against the international community expressed by the United Nations. Again, the wisdom, and not only the wisdom, but the energy of this time Sarkozy, more than anyone else, made that this action was endorsed by an international mandate, which made it not only morally justified, but juridically, in terms of rights, uh, right, juridically right and morally justified. So you have at least four reasons which make the difference between the war in Iraq and the war in um, Libya. Madam. Thank you very much, Mr. Levy. Um, you said that um, this Libya war um, defeated the idea of clash of civilizations. I would like to ask you, do you think that Libya intervention also transformed the idea of collective security through the United Nations compared to Kosovo war, for example? Do I think, I'm sorry, if... Do you think that Libya intervention yeah. changed the idea of the United Nations? Do you think that these military uh, yes. alliances replaced the idea uh, of the UN? I think that United Nations dishonored itself since its creation, step by step. All the big 
the great rendezvous of United Nations were missed. United Nations dishonored himself, uh, itself in, uh, in Sudan and Darfur, in Bosnia, uh, in uh, Timor, Eastern Timor, uh, dishonored itself everywhere in the world. For the first time, there was a decent, brave decision taken by international nations and implemented by a force ad hoc. So it is as if, at the last minute before the gong, United Nations saved itself. This, these United Nations who had a committee for human rights, which, uh, which president was Gaddafi, which had uh, a, a committee for equality between the sex, which president was the representative of Ahmadinejad. United Nations was a, a joke, was a piece of love, was a stock of love, a laughing stock, during decades. It was a pity, it was a shame. United Nations was useless, or when it serves to something, it was for the worst. For the first time, they took a courageous decision. No veto, a few abstentions, and the decision to intervene. Last question. Yeah. Thank you. Um, do you think the intervention in Libya would have happened if uh, Sarkozy and Cameron were men of the left? And what future do you see for the political left? What future is he for? For the political left. Uh, I don't know. If, uh, I think that it, it would probably... Uh, I don't want to... Uh, as I said today in another assembly, uh, I'm not a fan of neither Sarkozy nor Cameron. Frankly, not a fan. But it could not have happened with anybody else. It's a fact. C'est comme ça. Mitterrand, François Mitterrand, for whom I had a huge admiration, um, to whom I came speaking in the same way as I did with Sarkozy. I came to Mitterrand 20 years ago, 18 years ago, at the beginning of the war in, of, in Bosnia, I tried to attract, to grasp his attention as I did with Sarkozy. I thought I succeeded. I was sure at the moment when he made his famous trip to Sarajevo that he heard. And the reality is that he misunderstood, to say the least, or maybe he cheated to say the worst. And he bears a huge responsibility in the fact that the war in Bosnia lasted so long. So Sarkozy did what uh, Mitterrand did not do. Cameron did what uh, Blair did not uh, do, uh, neither in Darfur nor uh, I don't know where. So these two guys did that. I don't know why. 
I don't know why. Uh, each of them has probably some uh, personal reasons to have done it. Uh, there was a brotherhood between the two, in spite of the recent incidents. Uh, in spite of the conclusion which could be too quickly driven from, drawn from the recent veto in Europe and so on, there was a little, uh, uh, a real brotherhood between the two men. A common decision making. Uh, the feeling to continue for their generation a very old story of their grandfathers, French, free French, and free, free French, and free England were already associated in another battle where our freedom was directly involved. And they had both of them, I think, and I know, for one of them at least, they had the conviction to continue this great history and to put their feet in these glorious footsteps. So what makes two leaders thinking like that? What makes them faithful to their memory and free of it at the same time? What makes that history is a source of wealth, mental health, and not of a burden, paralyzing, a burden which paralyzes, which uh, stops you? There has, there has been a really mysterious chemistry in this moment in the relationship between our two countries and in the minds of these two leaders. Maybe they will not do anything else. Maybe Mr. Cameron will not be prime minister in a few weeks if his vice prime minister continues in the same mood. <laughs> Maybe Sarkozy will not be re-elected in a few months. But they will have done this. And they will have done it together. And this is really something. Okay, I thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, Sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. 
And we also use our cutting edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.